Hey, it's Martine. We want to thank you, our Post Reports listeners, by offering you a special 50% discount on a digital subscription to The Washington Post. Enjoy unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. Thanks for listening. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching you? President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 19th. Today, Facebook agrees to overhaul its policies on targeted ads. Couples separated indefinitely by the travel ban and a ceremonial dance in Christchurch. So Facebook has like one of the most lucrative ad platforms in the history of the world. Tracy Jan covers race and the economy for The Post, and she's been reporting on all the ways that Facebook has built such a massive advertising system. In this video, we want to show you why you see ads on Facebook and what information advertisers can use when they're planning their ad campaigns. There's a video posted by Facebook from way back in 2010 explaining how its ad targeting systems work. And it's because they have so much data about you. They know what you like, who you like, They can know if you are interested in camping or if you're English as a second language speaker. You get started in our online advertising system. The first step in creating the ad is the design. So for the longest time, this obviously is a very valuable treasure trove for advertisers. And they marketed themselves that way. Advertisers can literally go on and check a bunch of boxes on who they want to include as well as who they want to exclude. You'll select which users you want to see the ad. And you can choose some basic demographic information like age and gender. Until recently, that included gender. It includes where you live down to the zip code, which is often seen as a proxy for race, right? This is problematic, especially when it comes to housing credit and job ads, because you are not legally allowed to discriminate based on race, age, gender, and a bunch of other categories that are protected. We work hard every day to make sure that the ads you see on Facebook are relevant, useful, and respect your privacy. So there were cases in which an advertiser could just say, oh, well, we want people to live in our new fancy apartment building, but we don't want Black people to know about it. We don't want people with disabilities to know about it. We don't want people who speak Spanish to know about it. There are actually cases of companies that say we don't want old people to work for us. We don't want women to work for us. Like they'll target based on the exact demographic that they want. And some of these civil rights groups, including the National Fair Housing Alliance, they've actually done their own investigations where they did try to create and were able to create ads that said, we don't want black people. We don't want Hispanic people uh, living here. And that was happening even though there are laws that bar housing discrimination from happening. That's right. And Facebook knows about these laws. And until now, they basically asked advertisers to self-certify that they weren't discriminating. So how did this become an issue that Facebook had to deal with? So various civil rights groups and labor organizations have filed lawsuits in recent years to prevent Facebook from discriminating. And on Tuesday, Facebook announced that is going to completely overhaul its advertising platform. What does that mean? What would that look like? They're basically overhauling their entire ad system for these groups of advertisers. They're going to be creating a whole new 
platform. So if you are in housing or employment or credit offering loans, you're going to be channeled to a totally different advertising portal. And you won't have those same checkboxes that you would see otherwise if you are marketing food or a skin product or a summer camp. And why is Facebook doing this now? For years, Facebook has resisted doing this. They've said that they that this is just what online advertising looks like. We sell ads and we use information that people share with us or share with third-party sites to make those ads relevant to them. And have marketed their ability to target folks based on these various groups. But privacy and advertising are not at odds. In fact, they go together. When people share information with us, they have control over the information we use. Facebook has long defended their advertising practices, and they even tried to get a lawsuit by the National Fair Housing Alliance dismissed. Last year, the Department of Justice sided with fair housing groups. The DOJ said that the company can be held liable for ad targeting tools that deprive people of housing offers. So that was a signal that if this went to court, things might not work out in Facebook's favor. And Facebook kind of saw the tea leaves and said, we're going to come out on the wrong side of this, so we might as well try to fix this problem now. My colleague Liz Dwaskin and I, she covers Silicon Valley for us, interviewed Sheryl Sandberg about this. Sheryl Sandberg did not explicitly say that, but she did say that Facebook wants to do the right thing and they want to go not just to the letter of the law, but beyond the letter of the law in working with these various civil rights organizations and doing the right thing. Cheryl, do you agree with what Peter said, that these are tools of discrimination, that such targeting should not be legal? So protecting people against discrimination is very important to us. Um, we believe that this, this settlement goes not just to the law, but beyond the law in making, taking very, very strong action to make sure that any discrimination doesn't, doesn't happen. Um, you know, I think I... Even though this is a big step for Facebook, there are a whole lot of other ways in which targeted ads can be problematic, right? Like we saw that in 2016 with Russian involvement in the election. Why is this announcement from Facebook so limited to housing credit and employers and and not to a much wider range of, of advertising? These are the legally protected classes. So under the law, under the Fair Housing Act, under disability law, you cannot discriminate against these groups of people when it comes to housing, employment, and credit. Are there concerns about other ways in which targeted advertising on Facebook can be problematic? Absolutely. And we saw that with the election with Russia's influence. Similarly, you know, Facebook decided after all this controversy came out that they're going to be try to be more transparent by allowing anyone to see all political ads. So they're creating a database of that. And they're going to be doing the same thing with housing ads. Anyone, even if you haven't seen this particular housing ad because you're not in the right part of the country, you can still access what ads are being shown to Facebook users as it relates to housing. This new change that Facebook is announcing, is that going to affect their bottom line? That is questionable. I mean, these are a very narrow slice of advertisers. 
I specifically asked Sheryl Sandberg this, and she said that Facebook cares more about protecting people from discrimination than about lost revenue or any costs incurred. So I'm sure Facebook is figuring out how much it costs them, but that's not something that they're speaking openly about. And what does this small step say about broader regulation of social media outlets? I mean, Facebook is trying to get ahead of this. I mean, they're under the spotlight in so many ways from the public, from members of Congress, from federal agencies. And so this is their step that they're taking in hopes of warding off further regulation. And there have been other ways that we've seen recently where Facebook is responding to that public pressure, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg just announced that the company will be pivoting more toward thinking about protecting users' privacy. And then you have this where it's, the you know, that they want to limit the data that advertisers can use to target their ads. And so it seems to me that in a lot of different ways, Facebook is kind of dismantling all of the things that made it so successful and lucrative in the first place. This is a broad question that we will be exploring. To what extent will Facebook still be able to be Facebook if they're no longer allowed to sell your data? Tracy Jan covers the intersection of race and the economy for The Post. In addition to Facebook's promise to change its ad platform, it's also providing a payout of less than $5 million, including a $2.5 million settlement with the National Fair Housing Alliance to help train advertisers to comply with housing, money, and lending laws. Did you ever think the government of the United States of America was going to get in the way of you being with your husband? I do think ultimately we will be together. How it's going to happen, I don't know. A couple months ago, The Washington Post published a video about couples separated by President Trump's travel ban. Go out to any person in the United States after they get married on the day after their wedding day and say, hey, guess what? There's a 2% chance that you and your wife can live together maybe in two years from now and see how many people would say, oh, that's great. Sign me up for that. I'll take that all day long. My entire life has been put on hold. And then one of the subjects of the video, an Iranian man named Yahya Abedi, he received word that he was getting a waiver. He had spent a year and a half in bureaucratic limbo, not knowing if he'd ever get a U.S. visa to reunite with his wife, Olivia Cross. I can't believe this. I'm coming. I'm going to baggage claim. Olivia and Yaya are very much a modern-day romance in the sense that they met on Instagram. Kate Woodson produces op-ed videos for The Post, and she reported the story about Olivia and Yaya. Which 
more and more of my friends are actually doing. And (laughs) they'll slide into someone's DM and start talking with them. And then all of a sudden a relationship burgeon. And then you go across the country and meet this person. For Olivia and Yahya, it was the same thing, except he lived in Iran and she lived in Michigan. Kate and a colleague first started reporting on couples separated by the travel ban last year. When the Supreme Court upheld Trump's executive order to ban people from certain Muslim-majority countries and a couple others, my colleague Jason Rezaian and I realized that this major, major immigration policy had fallen completely from the public's mindset in terms of the impacts it had on not just people from these banned countries, but on Americans. And so we felt like this was a policy that deserved the treatment of the human storytelling. Jason had been the Post's correspondent in Iran for years, and he started hearing from couples separated by the travel ban who wanted their stories heard. And he told me, I'm getting these emails, I think it's a story. So I started to contact some of the people in the emails, and Jason and I would talk about how do we vet these people, and we began to ask them for their immigration documents, the stories that they told the immigration officers to prove the legitimacy of their love. And then we began Skype calling them, video Skype calling them, to um, to hear their stories. And it became the process of this awkward question of, do we believe in their love? They settled on two couples to feature. Olivia and Yaya were one of them. The other was Ricky Smith and Mona Khorasani. I was traveling in Iran for my 30th birthday. She was eating in a restaurant in Iran when he was visiting. She basically came up to me and said, you know, hi, my name is Mona. I'm a master's student in chemistry. Where are you from? And he was just taken with her and they started an email correspondence. And then they met in a third country and began a relationship that now has spanned a decade. And she ended up coming to Canada to study organic chemistry, has her PhD, and is now working in Canada. So she's like an hour flight away from her husband, but is unable to come to the United States. For both of these couples, what has it been like for the last two years, kind of putting their life together on hold because of the travel ban? Both of these couples and every couple that has been affected by the travel ban, they feel like they're in complete limbo. And that means for a lot of people, they're postponing the decision to have children. Olivia and her family postponed the decision to buy a house because they weren't sure how big or what kind of a house they would all live in together. She lives with her parents and they want to actually have the more traditional extended family experience of all living together. Ricky can't make certain business decisions because he's not sure if he should move to Canada. He runs his own company. It's a family-owned company, and he's trying to figure out, do I leave my home, my family business, and move to Canada, or do I wait for her? And so just beyond the practicalities, though, they're heartsick, you know? And when you find somebody that you love, they become your home. And so they're not just heartsick, but they're homesick. So you were able to be with them when they were having conversations on the phone or over Skype with each other. What are those conversations like when they're so far apart? The conversations that I witnessed and heard about as well vary from just adoring, I love you, I miss you so much, to really annoyed with each other. Because if you think about, you know, the ups and downs of a relationship, being in the same room can really help 
figure out where you stand with each other. And when you have distance and you have different time zones, you get tired. You just want to relax at the end of the day. And so you have to call your partner because you love them and you want to check in, but you'd also just love to vegetate. And then when you get on the phone, maybe the English isn't entirely as strong as you'd like it to be. And so you're having to, you know, so it's like, super loving and adoring and they're in constant touch with each other and they have all of these inside jokes and then it's also the stress in this impending doom of are we doing this and never going to be together so then what is the answer to that question is there a feasible way that some of these couples would be able to be together in the near-term future It's a good question about the timeline, and near-term future is doubtful for most people. Olivia and Yahya were in administrative processing, which is waiting to be approved for a waiver to the travel ban for a year and a half. And they were only informed that they got the waiver and the visa nine days after the Washington Post report came out. Do you think that there's a connection there? I asked the State Department if there was a connection there, and they said that of all the waivers that have been granted since the travel ban, very few of them involved publicity or media attention. And so the State Department's official line is, no, it didn't make a difference. I don't think it's a coincidence that nine days after the Washington Post profiled this couple that has been waiting for a year and a half, and they sent the article to the consulate that they got their visa. Since Yaya got his waiver, both Kate and Jason have been inundated with emails from couples and families who are looking for a way out of limbo. I have at least three dozen videos of people, home videos of people. We are separated from our loved ones for more than two years. We just wanted to spend the best time of our lives together. My family, especially my son, are really affected badly by travel ban. I have pictures of their kids. They have sent me letters from fertility doctors mm-hmm. talking about, you know, if this woman doesn't have a child within the next two years, her chances of creating a family are gone. Somebody texted me, please just say my name. Just just say my name. It's like they think that press coverage is the golden ticket. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't for Olivia and Yahya. But I think it's just such a testimony of how opaque this system is and people not understanding why does one person get a waiver and somebody else doesn't. All I want is having my husband beside me in the U.S. But due to the travel ban, it is not happening. And waiver doesn't work. I expect to be treated fairly without any discrimination towards my nationality so I can have my love here next to me in America. This travel ban hurts ordinary people. We have been in limbo outside our countries two years. I really miss my dad. I want my dad to join us, and that's all. I just want my dad. I just want my family. That's what it is. There have been recent efforts in Congress to increase the transparency around the travel ban policy. A new provision will require the State Department to report on how many visa applications are coming in from affected countries. The other couple featured in Kate's video, Ricky and Mona, they've applied for a visa and are waiting for an interview. If they get through that, they will go into administrative processing. And then they'll wait, hoping for a waiver. Links to the videos are at postreports.com. 
And now, one more thing from our Beijing bureau chief, Anna Fifield. She's in Christchurch, New Zealand, after a gunman killed 50 people in two mosques. I'm from New Zealand, and I actually went to journalism school here in Christchurch. So for me, as a journalist and as a New Zealander, it has been really moving to cover this. One event that Anna went to was at Hagley Park, this big park in the middle of the city. That's where a bunch of high school students gathered to perform the haka, a fierce ceremonial dance from Maori culture. Haka is very, a very powerful tool for them to be able to use their voices and use their strengths and show their emotion. It's used to show unity and strength together. And it was very powerful to watch all of these teenagers of all different colours and backgrounds coming together and performing this haka to show that uh, they will not be cowed by this hatred. The response to these attacks has been really heart-wrenching and also heartwarming. I think the country has really come together, united to support the victims and to support each other and to send a strong message. I haven't been home to New Zealand to cover anything that's happened in my country for almost 20 years, and it's really sad that this is what I've come home for, but also really heartwarming as a New Zealander to see this response. Anna Fifield is a native New Zealander and the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.